Hi, and welcome to Under an Open Heaven Podcast. We are glad you are joining us as we explore the reality of God's love expressed in Scripture and our own personal experiences. Thanks for joining us today as we explore the reality that we live under an open heaven. Enjoy! Hey, welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to Under an Open Heaven Podcast. My name is Arthur Richardson. I have my co-host with me, Stephen Anderson. And we're continuing on in our journey through the joy of the gospel. Last week, we talked a bit about overarching, kind of the preface, diving into what Pope Francis is saying, really focusing, trying to focus on what he's actually said, not just what the media has maybe twisted or taken out of context of what he said in, you know, his third or fourth language. So kind of going on with what he has said in reading it, what kind of hit me really, really hard is in paragraph 22, he says, God's word is unpredictable in its power. The gospel speaks of a seed, which, once sown, grows by itself, even as the farmer sleeps. This is taken from Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29. The church has to, has to attempt this unruly freedom of the world, which accomplishes what it wills in ways that surpasses our own calculations and ways of thinking. So when I first read this, Stephen, I'm not going to lie, I had a pit in my stomach flare up with fear. Because <laughs> what is he saying? We can't control the word of God. And then I started thinking about it a little bit more. I thought about like the history lessons that I've learned and all of that other fun stuff. There are multiple rites of the Catholic faith, right? There's a Byzantine rite, there's a Roman Catholic rite. The Roman and the Byzantine are probably the most well-known, but there's the Marian rite. There's, I don't even know all of them. There's so many, there's so many. And um, I think there's in like the twenties or something like that. I don't know, maybe less. I think it's 21. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a lot. There was a, some point where there were more, but the Roman Catholic rite kind of like absorbed them all and kind of took on a, its own culture from that. Just kind of thinking of that, it struck me that the worship is similar but extremely different. So there's a flow that happens in, in each of those where it's a procession, there's pretty much like a welcome, and then penitential, liturgy of the word, Eucharist, goodbye. You know, <laughs> so that's, that's like pretty much what it is. But there are different expressions of how they do that. There's different things like the Byzantine, right? It's, it's like two or three hours long, you know? I mean, even, even the Roman Catholic, right? In certain cultures, like those masses are long, like in, in Africa, those, those masses are long. They're like two or three hours, you know, it might even be a whole day ordeal. And, you know, in America, it's like, <laughs> it better be an hour or less better if it's 45 minutes on Sunday. Let's keep this snappy, you know? Um, well, in the Catholic world, for sure. In the Catholic I, I know world, a for lot sure. Of Protestants are. Uh, I remember a Protestant girl at, at the high school I went to, and uh, she she was like, "My my church is so long; it's three hours. Why?" And then she appreciated how mass was only an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was talking to a coworker of mine, and we were talking about his like his masses are usually like 45 minutes you know his priest is super choppy and speedy you know and i was kind of laughing with him i'm like you know my my uh my church is their their mass is usually like an hour and 15 and we stay and talk after that it's like a whole ordeal and you know i actually like it a little bit longer i enjoy it because you know, they do a good job um <laughs> right yeah if you do a good job it's good it's good to be like hour 10 hour 15 i mean that's the church i go to as well does about mm -hmm. an hour and 15 but yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. So it kind of struck me, the point that I'm trying to make, it struck me of how different all of these things are, but yet so universal. Mm -hmm. The word is universal. And I realize I have this like gut pit desire to control how the word of God is going to actually develop in somebody else that I'm investing in by sharing it, right? But that's not for me to to control. It's not for me to control how the culture even shapes and helps cultivate how the word of God grows up. And I think we because of I, I I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who struggles with this um struggle with control. Because I mean, clearly the Pope mentions this attempt of unruly freedom of the world, you know. So I don't think I'm the only one. But I feel like in America at least, and I'm sure there's other places that deal with this, maybe coined a different term, but we're we're in a culture war right now. What's what's a culture war? That's really just whose who's, who's side has authority and sway over society. This really just boils down to this like control of the word and how we want it to, to shape and spread and all this other stuff. That's just kind of my thoughts on that. And then I, as I was kind of reflecting on that, I just heard Jesus kind of slide up in there in my heart and say, do not fear for I have conquered the world. And uh, that, that made me take a step back of like, yeah, you're right. I don't need to engage in this culture war nonsense. I just need to trust in you. I just need to sow the seed and let you do your work. And I realize as like I kind of took a deep look into myself, I'm not the only one who probably needs to do that. I think Pope Francis is asking us to take a deep look into each of our hearts, but the church itself as an organization to look into its own heart and really try to admit to ourselves that this culture war that we're trying to engage in is is really just boiling down to us wanting control. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um yeah, no, I thought I thought that was good. I don't I don't really have any additional thoughts on that. Okay. Cool. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like control for me I think is based in in self-preservation of comfort is usually like that's my motive. Like if I'm trying to control something it's usually because I I have some invested desire to control my surroundings so that I feel comfortable. And honestly, I think looking back at last week, there's a, a, con- a continued thread of there's the that ego coming up again, right? The ego of the group, the ego of myself. Like I'm trying to set up a culture that I'm comfortable in. Um, and I kind of look at just how sometimes we we evangelize. Um, I think there's a period in in our history where the Roman Catholic Church, whenever they would evangelize, it wasn't hey, let's learn your language. It's, hey, learn Latin. <laughs> you know, um, It wasn't, hey, let's, uh, let's kind of learn what, what are your belief systems and like, let's, how, let, let's actually convert those so that they glorify God. You know, I, there's, there's some funny things that like you, I don't know if you've seen them or not on the internet, but like things like the Christmas tree, oh, that's just a pagan thing. Well, I mean, if you want to say it that way, but I mean, they took a pagan idea and, and baptized it, you know, made it Christian, mm-hmm. they submerged into the, the Christian faith to help explain what was true in their own, their own religion so that it wasn't a complete shock so that they, you know, so they could accept it. I was listening to a podcast today and it was, a lot of it was kind of psychological, just a like good relationship type stuff. Right. And one of the things that was mentioned is there are a few different schools of thought. One of them is that there are like seven 
or sorry, eight or nine, I think is what she said, like the base feelings. And then every other word that we have to describe just kind of colors it, gives it a little bit more context, a little bit more feeling. And all but one, they're all like alarm systems, like something's wrong, survivor, survival. And then the one is safety. So when you feel happy, you're feeling a sense of safety. When you're able to connect, it's because of safety. So the wisdom here, I think, in letting go of our self-preservation of our own culture and not engaging to that culture war, but rather listening, learning from our ancestors who did it well, of like, oh, you're worshiping at the tree of Odin. Well, here's this evergreen tree that's a symbol of Christ. I can cut down your oak and you can still cut down the Christmas tree, but hey, it's still green, (laughs) you know, and like using using these different analogies to express the the word of god in somebody else's culture so it clicks for them so that they feel a certain sense of safety that that term um, that gets thrown around kind of um whimsically uh, meet them where they're at like what does that mean i think that's at the heart of what it means i had this like epiphany today meeting somebody where they're at I think boils down to helping them feel safe and and where what they experience on a day to day basis, and not just like bulldoze what they feel and at what they experience with what you think is true and your experiences. You know, no one no one likes to be bulldozed or presented with like essentially like the anti gospel, you know, the bad news before they. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Pope Francis goes on to in paragraph 27. I dream if a missionary of a missionary option, that is a missionary impulse capable of transforming everything so that the church, church's customs, ways of doing things, times, schedules, language, and structures can be suitably channeled for the evangelization of today's world rather than for her self-preservation. I think that, I think that um, really just, is well said. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at with what I was saying earlier of like being willing to learn from those who did it well before. And we're not going to bulldoze them with our language. We're not going to tell them you have to learn Latin, you have to learn English in order to receive the gospel. Help me learn your language. Help me learn how you think. Tell me about your holidays. Now let me share mine, you know, and I I think it's in that seed that true understanding in the hearts of the other can grow. Do you have any thoughts on that, Stephen? Um, yeah, just the self-preservation. Um, I was reading that too, and I was thinking that, um, there's kind of two ways that this can be a problem in the church right now. And the first way is, um, you know, first of all, he's talking about you know, we should be focusing on evangelization in terms of structuring everything that we do in the church, right? Time, schedules, language, structures, etc. Uh, so that it's focused on evangelization of the world rather than for the church's self, uh, self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about that in contrast to, not, not that these are the opposites, but in contrast to Benedict the Sixteenth, Pope Benedict's quote, where he, where he talked about a smaller, more pure church, mm. right? 
Um, and I think a lot of people today um, kind of take Benedict wrongly on that. I think yeah. they take his quote and use it as an excuse to isolate themselves I would agree. and to create a, um, you know, an elitist structure and, and, and they're not even aware that they're doing it necessarily. Right. They're like, Oh, I'm just upholding the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in that, but in that way, they're just doing it for the self-preservation and it can even be the self-preservation of just like whatever the religion, the religion has given them right? They're just trying mm-hmm. to preserve the religion. It's like, why? <laughs> why are we trying to preserve our religion? It's so that we can have an encounter, we can use it as a tool to encounter God, right? The ultimate goal is the encounter with God. Mm-hmm. Um, the end goal, we talk- I talked about this last time, the end goal isn't the, isn't the religion itself, right? It's like, it's yeah. necessary. It's a necessary tool. It's not the end goal. Um, so I, I think maybe, you know, um, um, that's the danger on one side, you know, is to be stale, to be rigid, to just try to self-preserve your way at what you're doing instead of going and scheduling everything to evangelize. But I think the other side, um, the other danger is that it you can evangel you can think you're evangelizing, but you're doing it in such a maybe as Pope Francis said, like you can't just go out and excuse sin. It's like putting a band-aid on like a gaping mm. wound. Like you're not doing anything. Right? Yeah. And so a lot of people you know, not to throw out names here, because I know it's like judgment and, and we, I don't, we don't even know these people, right? They're just media figures. But, you know, maybe the more liberal types in the church who are going out and talking about inclusivity and acceptance and they're trying to, like, bring in the world. The, the conservative side, you know, like, really hates on that. And they're like, what are you doing? You know, like, you're, you're going against truth and you're going against blah. And the liberal side's like, no, you're being rigid. And the truth is, of course, they're being rigid. But the other side is putting a bandaid on it, right? And mm-hmm. why and, and why are they doing it? It's a, it's its own form of self-preservation. They're saying, no, we can preserve the church by giving up the truths. You know? Mm-hmm. We can preserve the church by giving up what's actually going to help people. Well, you're not going to preserve the church. Neither is going to preserve the church. You know, isolating yep. yourself and becoming a smaller, more pure church, not in the way Benedict said, but in the way that you're taking it. Well, that's going to kill the church. And then, and then trying to go out and sell the church out to the world, you know, that's, that's not going to preserve it too, but they both think they're preserving it. You know, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I'm going to go out and win some numbers by, by giving up some of what we believe. And so I just think that was just my first thought when I read that was, this is kind of like the weakness of these two extremes of, of an idea of evangelization. But, but the, the, the good part of evangelization is the middle part, right? What you want is just getting people to come to an encounter with Jesus. And how can you do that if you're not encountering Jesus in the first place? And that's kind of his theme here he's talking about in these 10 paragraphs is he's saying, you know, we need to have conversion as first and foremost as part of how we're going to go out and evangelize. If we can't convert ourselves, we're not going to be able to convert other people. Mm-hmm. So that's That is my thoughts. I love it. I love it. And I think, um, I think that it's, it's super tricky to do what you're saying because we've positioned the church's position itself over the course of the past, like 500, maybe more years. I don't know. Um, but to be like the morality police, you know, um, give me an example, a good example of 
what it looks like for the church to be the morality police is kind of wrapped up in in how the purity wave went along now that's like both protestant and catholic and all christian movements but um i'm i'm going to focus more on kind of the kickback from what took place in like the sexual revolution in the 50s and 60s right so during that time you like and then right after you had that you have uh you begin to have like councils form and then eventually you have uh john paul ii write uh and, and have homily series on what it's like to have like good healthy relationships right which became to be known as theology of the body so this was then taken by different members of the Catholic Church and elaborated and rules were kind of created, not even from the hierarchy or from the magisterium, but like, you cannot do this. This is black and white morality. Like there's no room for you to discern within your own marriage or in your own relationship, you know, X, Y, or Z. And like, there's certain things that the Pope came right out and said, um, that are, you know, black and white. And I'm not talking about those things. Um, you know, like, I guess a, a good example of it is, I, I might trigger some people here, so I apologize, but, you know, like, uh, being aroused before you're married, right? So kissing could cause arousal. Um, or being around somebody for the first time could cause arousal, you know? Like, mm. um, and and that's actually, that's not moral. That's not moral. That's just your body doing things like we have no control over arousal whatsoever you know and we've thrown morality around it or some people have and try to kind of throw red sirens on every you know youth retreat <laughs> you know there's always like a guy's talk and a girl's talk and there's like then um you know that i don't know what it's like on the girls or on the girl's side but on the guy's side you know it's like rip them a new one for looking at a girl uh, and, you know, pretty much just beat them up for even thinking about the boy's new budding sexuality, you know, and it, it becomes this potentially toxic uh, situation. Is, that this I don't... is this something you've been to lately? Were you helping out with a retreat and this was going on? Um, <laughs> this just, it just seems like such a Not recently. Example. Although it's been very long since I've been on any retreats. Yeah. Um, when I was in high school, this was a lot of this was the case a lot of the time. Oh. <laughs> um, honestly, when I was uh, helping out as a missionary doing retreat ministry, like there are other partners that we would partner with for like this or that. I don't want to name anybody's name, you know, because I don't want to discredit uh, the good work that maybe a ministry is doing um, with one bad thing, you know, um, because I'm sure there's things that I have said that. Uh, my other co-hosts have said that could be considered wrong, you know? So with that in mind, or somebody might think is wrong anyway. So with that in mind, I don't want to name anybody, but yeah, I mean, like I, I just have seen it in the Catholic culture at large, just uh, we're very quick to add extra rules and make things extra black and white when there is actually quite a bit of room for discernment. And I, I use the sexual one because that's everyone's really aware of it. <laughs> you know, everyone's really aware. I had another thought about the self-preservation, uh, which yeah. was just that um, 
you know, just because he's talking about scheduling things. And I was just thinking about, like, realistically in the church's, like, life. Yeah. It's really interesting that it, it seems like, and, and not that I want to, like, harp on size here. It seems like, you know, priests and churches that are more liberal, like, they don't schedule the sacraments. And it's always yeah. like, what's up with that? Like, sometimes you get on a, it's always a red flag to me if I get on a, a church's website and they don't have, like, confession times or if you find the confession that says, by appointment only. I'm like, yeah. what's going on here? <laughs> you know, it's like, liberals won't structure, they'll talk about going out and being inclusive, but then they won't go and structure an adoration night. They just won't play, like, liberal churches just don't play an adoration night. You would think, like, oh, adoration and praise and worship is such a liberal thing. And 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 this is kind of goes back to charismatics. Uh, traditional, like, trad Catholics look at charismatic Catholics as, like, liberals because maybe there's that, that Protestant-y flavor to it that they associate. I have not met a single liberal charismatic Catholic. Right? Mm. <laughs> not a single one. They're all conservative. They're all very conservative, right? And uh, and and charismatic Catholics are are, are very very sacramental because they believe that the Holy Spirit and the power of God's moving through the sacraments, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about yeah. people who believe the power is coming through the sacraments in in, a, in maybe in a way that's different <laughs> and more <laughs> adding on how much comes through it. Um, but but yeah, I don't know. I just f- felt like that was the difference. You know, it's like. Um, I, I think in that way, because maybe this was me feeling unfair for harping on like conservatives. It's like if we're talking about evangelism and schedules, like uh, a lot of these conservative priests, you know, who I, I might, you know, might disagree with a little bit of their pastoral opinions on other stuff. Um, not 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 like dogmatic and theological and church teaching opinions, obviously, but just maybe like how they go about things. They do a darn good job about scheduling confessions. It's like, you know, especially like the last couple of years, there's, there's churches that are just like, oh yeah, oh, we're having like confession four days a week. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. You know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, just thinking about schedules and confessions and, uh, and how, you know, certain people will schedule them or won't schedule them and how that's an important part of evangelization too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also, um, just in my my work life role, I, I get to meet a lot of different uh, parish leaders, and you know cultures develop within those churches and whatnot. I think uh, the danger. And I, I had a conversation with one of uh, one of the my my to be clients. The danger of of this emphasis that you're talking about, like this was just it, you know. <laughs> but we don't really do adoration. Was the the quote. I mean, we do, but just not that often, you know, mm-hmm. and I kind of caught her a little bit and said, hey, I'm really glad of like the way you said it, where you said that we just emphasize doing outreach more. And it was interesting for the rest of that conversation. She kept catching herself like. Barry to bash the other side. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> it's getting irritating, you know, Um and, and that's that's like kind of the trap where we put an emphasis on what we're doing. And it's all about self-preservation. It's our own culture that we're building, that we're trying to maintain and keep and safeguard. And 
you know, it's just, it's just what we're comfortable with at the end of the day, you know? Um, and I, I think that can, can, that can honestly go for like both a culture where it's like constant confession or no confession, you know, having an overabundance of confession might even be like, you can only receive mercy in the confessional where God, um, I heard this in the seminary and it, like, it's stuck with me ever since. Like God has bound himself to the sacraments, but he is not bound by them. Mm-hmm. And like having, like, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of confessions, but somebody who is m- maybe dealing with scrupulosity or something like that might be triggered of thinking, well, I have to go to confession every single day. I have to be there all the time because that's the only way I can receive mercy. Um, you know, so obviously priests who are in the confessional, keep an eye on that if you're listening to this. Um, and we thank you for your service. So, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> that real. is a needed service. That yeah. is a needed service. Uh, uh, sucks. <laughs> Just sitting yeah. there, same sins at your same sins. It's not yeah. like it's fun. <laughs> yep. Um, so I was reading through this paragraph 27 again here. In the, mm-hmm. in the encyclical and, and just right after where you left off, it says, you know, talking about these structures that are being renewed, it says as part of an effort to make them more mission oriented, to make ordinary pastoral activity on every level more inclusive and open to inspiring pastoral workers, a constant desire to go forth and elicit a positive response from all those who Jesus. Blah, blah, blah. So I, I was just looking at that part where it talks about making the pastoral activity more inclusive open mm. and it reminded me of what bishop baron uh recently talked about because there's i don't know if you know about this but there's this um synodal process that's going on that's being kind of um and i'll talk about this a little later because in paragraph 32 pope francis kind of touches on this a little bit but um he talks about the synodal process is going on and it's basically this idea that you know these bishops and not just bishops but even uh, priests and even lay people and that's where a little bit of controversy gets in here um but basically you have this synod of of you know not just the bishop not just the pope right not just the the pope and the cardinals and who he has on his you know staff um deciding you know and or at least having a conversation about where should we move forward as a church um and recently some of these synods have put out this idea of inclusivity and bishop Barron looked at that and he said okay, what do you mean by that? Right. And he's not, he's not. And and if we want to talk about somebody who's kind of like middle of the road, I consider, I consider Bishop (laughs) Barron, he's kind of, if we had like a, what do you call those? Like a political uh, alignment chart. Right. Yeah. He's, he's, he's (laughs) zero, zero in my opinion. I think, I think he's true neutral. um, If we're going to do Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And so uh, he's just, he's right there in the middle. Um, and he's like this inclusivity. If you're talking about making sure you're going out and meeting the people, yes, of course. But what do you actually mean by this? Are you meaning people are going to come in with their wounds? People are going to come in sick and then need healing. And you're going to say, oh, you're fine. You don't need healing. You know, you're just going to kind of, uh, put the bandaid on, right? You're going to kind of just like hand wave whatever's going on in their life. It's like, no, 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 no. Like Jesus came so that you might have life and have it to the fullest, not so that you can just be accepted in, in whatever's going on. It's like, there's a way. And if, actually, our religion was originally called the way at first. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it's, it's a way you go. It's a way you walk. And maybe that's kind of like 
a works thing, you know, Protestants might have a problem with, but the religion was originally called the way it's like what you do. It's how you live. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. uh, in terms of inclusivity, um, you know, I think Pope Francis would completely agree, especially because Pope Francis is the one who made the bandaid uh, comment. Right. I think Pope yeah. Francis and Bishop Barron would agree on this, that what does inclusive mean? Like Pope Francis, you know, is looking at almost like kind of mother Teresa did. He's looking at the undesirables in the world and he's not like, mm. okay, time to put you in a suit and get you and get you to church. You know, he, he's like, it's time to meet you and help you encounter Jesus. So you can have that personal relationship and we'll, we'll go from there. Um, yep. But, but a lot of places don't do that. I, I kind of want to give two examples here. Um, the first one is, is a church where there was this, uh, I, this is secondhand information. So, but I'm not naming any names anyway. Um, there's a friend who told me that he knew of this older guy at a church, um, who basically had this illness and he couldn't really sit through a church for a whole hour. And it always seemed mm -hmm. to be like half an hour in 25 minutes in, he would really have to just like leave. And he wanted to receive communion with people there at church rather than, you know, have it brought to him at home later. I don't know why. It was just something about him. He wanted to receive it when he was there. And, um, you know, there's consecrated hosts. Why can't, why can't you just have someone go bring it to him before? Um, and he essentially asked the priest about this. And the priest was like, no, you can have it brought to you after. We don't, it, like, it's irregular to give it in the church beforehand, before the communion is consecrated and, and distributed. Um, he just didn't come back, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I'm not saying you have to kowtow to every, every single parishioner and their needs, but it's like, was that, was this, was, was this person feeling included? Was he feeling like he was Jesus Christ? And you know, what if Jesus Christ walked in the church and said, Hey, I have a medical issue that forces me to leave church half an hour in. Can I receive communion, uh, bef before I go, you know, can somebody bring this to me? I mean, for goodness gracious, like <laughs> it's, it's 3am somewhere, right? It's like the mass has already happened somewhere. It's after mass somewhere, right? It's like somebody can't have a pix with a communion in it from like last night's mass or something, you know, ready to go. Like it's after, it's after some church. Um, but, but no, apparently there was a, a certain rigidity about this. And, uh, and it's not like these weren't consecrated hosts. He's asking for a consecrated host. He's not asking to like, you know, toss them over an unconsecrated one. Um, but that, that was an oddly rigid thing for me to hear about. And another example I can think, and this one's maybe very controversial and people have different opinions about this that I brought up before, but I knew of a woman who's going through an RCIA program and she was, I say older, it's probably getting closer to my age here now, but uh, she was probably in her late thirties and she was not married, but she was living with a man and she had two kids with them. Mm -hmm. And I could be wrong on these details. Again, this is secondhand information. Um, but she, um, she was going through it. She was almost done with RCIA, at which point the people who were leading the RCIA learned that she had a, uh, that she was living with a man who she was not married to. And obviously they're having sex, right? Mm -hmm. And so they pretty much told her, Hey, you're, you're living in sin and, uh, you need to either get married to him or, or, or separate. Well, the man didn't want to get married to her because he just had a thing against marriage. You know, he didn't want to be tied down by this woman. And so he wasn't going to marry her. He was just totally against it. She tried to convince him totally against it. Um, but 
this woman, I, I didn't know what, what her, I don't know what her situation was, but essentially she was in a situation where she could not make enough money for herself and her two kids. If she, uh, if she wanted to leave this man, he was her entire support system. Her family wasn't around, Oof. you know, and if, if people are like, Oh, she could go on disability from the government. And it's like, that's, <laughs> that's not a solution. Um, and, and at least it wasn't in this case. Um, but anyways, so she told as much. She told the RACIA people. She said, you know what? I completely agree with you. I think you're right. He's 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 kind of uh he's not the best husband, um, but he's supporting me and my kids, and um, you know, I I would want to get married to him and I would want to leave him, but I'm stuck in a rock and a hard place. He won't marry me and I can't afford to leave him. And the RACIA people pretty much told her okay, then we can't move forward with accepting you into the church. <laughs> Good God, you know? And, and, and there's a key word here, and the word is uh, living in sin. You know, uh, there's another phrase for it, right? Uh, public, what is it? It's not public scandal. There's another phrase for this. But yeah. these sins yeah. are like, they seem to be singled out as if they're yes. like the most important thing. Um, and, and, you know, it's like, let me tell you, like, there's a lot of sins going on in the church. Um, and people are still coming and getting communion, right. And going to uh-huh. confession week after week after week, you know, and priests for goodness sakes, you know, so a priest can go, Oh, I don't know if you know this. And, and I could be, I, I could be touting something wrong here, but this is what I heard from a priest. You have to, you have to consume the Eucharist for a mass to be valid. Mm-hmm. And I heard yep. that a priest told me that if you had not had the opportunity to go to confession as a priest, that you could make a, you know, like a perfect act of contrition, you know, like if you had to say that mass, you could make a perfect act of contrition, um, you know, and then and then go to confession uh, later. And it's like with how many priests aren't living with each other nowadays and with how pre- uh, prevalent porn is, it's like. And from what I've heard from priests about other priests struggling with it, you know, it's like, you know, and you read the diary of Faustina and God talks about how many priests are saved. And then it's like, good luck with how many non-priests are saved. (laughs) Right. Hmm. And so it's just like priests can go and watch porn and receive the Eucharist, not after having gone to confession, but we can't let a woman in because even though she wants to do good, she wants to go on the right path. She needs guided. Um, and people will be like, oh, well, we'll, we'll guide her where she's at, and, and, and then we'll accept her once she's left, you know? And it's just like, she's gone. She's gone. She never came back. Who knows? Yep. Who knows where she went? Maybe she went to a Protestant church. Maybe she didn't. We'll never know. Maybe, hopefully. We'll pray for her. Um, but just not inclusive, right? Yeah. I, um, did we need to accept her situation? No. You call it out. But you walk with them. You say, okay you know this is wrong. This is something you're going to have to deal with. And let's be honest here. There's no such thing as living in sin. I'm infuriated by the topic. There's no such thing. From a theological perspective, there are occasions of sin and there are sin. Mm -hmm. And there's scandal. And those are three completely separate things. They're related, but they're separate things. Okay? Living in sin means that you cannot live in sin. You can be in a state of sin. You can have sinned. You can sin. You cannot live in sin, right? There's no, what people mean by that is 
we're all assuming you're having sex. Yeah. Right? And it's like, she could say, There's oh. There's no guarantee of that. It didn't sound like she really trusted Right, me. right. It's <laughs> like, you can't say that you know that they're having sex. Are they? Probably. But you can't say you know that. Right? That's between her, God, and her priest during confession. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, until we're going to announce go. everybody else's, you know, hidden sexual habits over here uh i don't see why we have to hold back a woman from our cia because of of one public one which she's not even wanting at this point you know so anyways that's my rant over about inclusivity but it's just that in between it's like call it out but but don't don't build a brick wall you know yeah so like using these as case studies let's let's kind of like dive in because what we're saying in theory is actually super hard so there's a few things that I kind of want to pull out as like a frame of reference of like a methodology or a mindset that we need to have in order to make something good come from these situations. Sounds good. So you had mentioned that like it's based in faith or sorry, in works and that might make the Protestants mad. Um, I'm going to kind of actually say it this way. You need to be living in faith and working out of that faith. So with that in mind, if we were to look at, um, we'll take the the lady first because she's most fresh in my head. And honestly, that's more, that's like really infuriating to me. She just explained she is between a rock and a hard place. And she could potentially, it's you could almost insinuate that there is a possibility of abuse. There's at least a power struggle there. There is, there is a, there is an imbalance of power between this man and woman outside of liberating her from quote unquote, her life of sin. Wouldn't the desire be to liberate her from a life of abuse and having the faith that the Holy spirit is going to speak into your life to help guide, ask the right questions. Maybe, I don't know, go three steps, the extra mile because she's got the desire for Jesus and Jesus has the desire for her, you know? And, and that's, that's the thing that I I think is, is the struggle here that that we're, we're dealing with where we don't want to just say like, Oh, you're fine. You're fine in your sin. And we don't want to just isolate of like, you have different sin than me. Therefore, you're bad. Get out of here. You might tempt me towards more sin, uh, you know, and then convince ourselves that we are um, the the pure few, which is false. Uh, I mean, we should always be trying to allow Jesus to refine us. But that is a constant, continual growth. Um, we won't be done until we are dead, and then we still have a chance for purgatory. So. We, there's a lot of refinement here, a lot of opportunities. So I guess that's kind of like the direction that I really want to push all of us in of like, there is no formula to accompaniment. And what I mean by that is like, there's no formula to walking with a person from their sin into a life of freedom. It's hard, messy work. But I mean, those of you who are married know that this is the case. Those of you who have a best friend or a close friend, 
know that this is the case. You don't always call your spouse out on everything they're doing wrong all the time. There's a time and a place, you know? And it's definitely not in the first time you walk into the door and say hi, you know, when they get home from work. There is, uh, and I, I think that's kind of like, you point that to a new relationship of somebody who's dealing with a different sin than you, or a public sin, maybe. We'll just say a public sin. The trap is to say, in order for you to enter into this thing, you have to be like this. No public sin. And that, I think, can be a huge danger. Um, I think that really lends itself, um, what I'm saying, to a misunderstanding of the spiritual work of mercy, of admonishing the sinner, kind of circling back to how would you treat your spouse? Well, hopefully you love your spouse, trust your spouse, and feel safe with your spouse. And it's from that safety that your spouse can say, hey, you didn't do the dishes. Or hey, I asked you to do something and you got really defensive. Something like that. You know what I mean? Like you approach them with love and kindness. And, you know, there might be a time or two where you're like, kind of snarky and sassy with them, but it's based in, a, in a, a relationship of trust, right? And if not, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems and, and friction and you're going to feel unsafe and you're going to distrust and you're going to feel critiqued all the time, right? So there's, there's dangers that are clearly shown to us in our marriages. So all of that said, I think it's best summed up in paragraph 39, where Pope Francis says, Before all else, the gospel invites us to respond to the God of love who saves us, to see God in others, and to go forth from ourselves to seek the good of others. Under no circumstance can this initiation be obscured. So I think he gives us a good foundation block that we need to discern very, very clearly in our in our personal lives, with our personal relationships, with the people that we meet, how are we to approach them and present and share the seed of the gospel? Because if we, if we have a one-size-fits-all formula, we're going to start to bulldoze. It's not, going to, it's not going to really do well. And uh, we will we will end up just casting seed onto only the path if we start making everybody feel uncomfortable by how hard and how rigid we are with our own culture and our own mindset and everything else. And we don't need to back down from what we believe. We just need to listen. That's, that's, the, that's the wild thing. We don't need to change our minds if we listen. We just need to listen. Because if we listen to the other person, we're probably going to be more trained to listen to the Holy Spirit. That way we can approach them in their life, present the gospel in a way that is attractive and beautiful. It can set seed, and the Lord will do his pruning. So, yeah. Stephen, do you have any last final thoughts? No. I think you summed it up. All righty. Cool, cool. So let's end with prayer. In the name of the Father, Son. Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your spirit, 
We ask for an increase in faith, a faith that is alive with works, a faith that is alive with being able to hear your Holy Spirit. We ask you to help us to let go of the desire for control and self-perseverance. We let it all go and we ask that we might see the fruit of the fruit of new seed growing in faith, especially in, in ways that we weren't predicting or anticipating or able to control. Lord, we ask you to give us wisdom that we might see your plan and best position ourselves and best invite others with skill and with kindness. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week. Take care and God bless. Bye. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. We hope that this podcast blessed you. And we ask if it did, share that with the people that you love so that it can bless them as well. If you want to reach out to us, we are available on Facebook. We are under an open heaven. Our email address is under an open heaven dot fire at gmail.com. And we are on Instagram at under an open heaven dot fire. So please go uh, give those a gander and send us any th- any feedback that you want. We would be happy to reply to you. God bless. Bye.